wanted to try meditation, but you can't figure out where to fit it in your schedule? Uh, or have you thought about trying it yet? You don't know who to listen to or kind of guide to have or who to teach you. In this episode of The Soul Pod, I'm your host, Gary Lewis, and I talk to my former meditation instructor, Lisette Cooper. Lisette is far more than a meditation instructor. She is uh, a woman of, of, of many amazing talents. And I was so blessed and fortunate to have her on the show. Uh, Lisette shares all her tips about how she works meditation and mindfulness into her very, very busy schedule. And she also shares insights about what to look for in a teacher and how to find the right one that connects with you. I think you'll gain a lot from this conversation with Lisette. I know I did. And uh, I hope you have a listen. Thank you. Lisette Cooper, great to see you. Nice to see you, Gary. I've been looking forward to this podcast episode for a long time. So I'll tell you why. Um, I, when I created, had the idea to create the podcast, the Soul Pod, as you know, <clears throat> it was based on Ram Dass and it was based on my experiences that I'd had in the past. And so when I um, first thought about these life changing experiences that I've had that have made me consider my place on the earth and consider uh, how exactly I am contributing to my soulful evolution, things that have really kind of moved me. <clears throat> one of the first, um, one of the first most impactful events that I could think of is the Datun that I did at Dharma Ocean, where you were my meditation instructor. And um, I had not done anything like that before. So it was for me, I know a lot of people, most people in the room that I had spoken with had done that before. I know for you, that was definitely not your first experience. You had done that a bunch. And uh, I just thought, wouldn't it be not amazing? Not my first rodeo, yeah, not it wasn't my first your... Datun. You know, you know how I know that, by the way? So I'll give a little... Uh, so. On the way there, um, I flew into Denver and then I took the bus with a bunch of other people uh, down from Denver to to Crestone, to the uh, retreat center. You were on that bus and so was um, another woman who I don't know who she was, but she seemed like she was a friend of yours. And I happened to be sitting directly behind you. And uh, I don't think you knew this because I never mentioned it. And so you guys were chatting and unfortunately, I wasn't eavesdropping, but... You were chatting so loud. I was right behind you. So I, was, I, was, I heard everything you were saying. <clears throat> and this friend, um, well, what, what kind of sparked me to say that it wasn't your first rodeo, when we were turning, making the turn into Crestone off the highway and that left turn you do that goes, all of a sudden you're kind of staring right into Crestone and you still got, still got a far drive. But uh, everybody on the bus sort of got you know, buzzing. Okay, here we go. Who's ready for it? And I think you guys said something to that effect. And I was like nervous all of a sudden. I'm like, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? Everyone's acting like it's, all right, take a deep breath. Here we go. And truly, I get it now because it's a huge endeavor to do this. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. We'll put it that way. You've got to really be committed to a practice and you've got to really see the value in it. But um, also on that bus ride, you, uh, you were talking to this person and she, I think I might've been chatting with her before she started chatting with you. And so she was really sweet. Um, but I remember her chatting with you about uh, a friend of yours, and the reason why this struck me was because I, I, um, I had you know been around mindfulness teachings and stuff for a while, and I'd, I'd read a lot of authors, and I knew a lot of the, I know a lot of the main players in, in New York and in other areas for these communities, different sanghas, and uh, she was actually asking you if she should be uh, an intern to Sharon Salzberg, and I heard you say that. You know, basically, you were friends with Sharon, and I didn't know that, but it was in that moment where I was like, "Where am I? Like, what kind of bus am I on?" Where the person in front of me is like <laughs> casually friends with Sharon Salzberg, which to me, Sharon, uh, having lived in New York and having been to a ton of her teachings over, you know, over the years, and read read all her works, read articles that she's written, um, it, met her briefly in, in very you know brief encounters at different uh, sits and that kind of thing. She's somebody who I always looked up to. So the idea that now I'm on this bus behind this person who's like casually friends with Sharon Salzberg, where the other person's like, oh, I'm going to casually maybe work with her, blew my mind. And I was like, okay, we are in for some stuff, you know? So that's kind of how it all kicked off it was like, wow, I'm entering this interesting space where these people are really committed to, to practice. And um, it was amazing. So that's what struck me first about you. I never yeah, told you that. Yeah. 
I don't know no, if you remember. I think I sat on a board with Sharon at that time and we spoke on panels together and things like that. And, you know, she's super sweet. And, uh, but no, I, I had no idea. And yeah, when you first turn that corner at Moffat, I think it is, and then it's a straight shot to Crestone. I mean, Crestone is like this super crazy place in the Rocky Mountains. And, it feels like there are as many unseen beings as there are human beings in Crestone. It just has this incredible vibe. And there must be like 200 different spiritual centers there. So as soon as you like turn the corner in Crestone straight ahead, you kind of enter like the zone. So, so there we were, just a bus full of uh, seekers on our way to Crestone. Yeah, it's... Uh it's physically charging. Like you actually, at least I felt emotionally and physically charged as we turned that corner. Like, okay, this is going to be either amazing. It's going to be really challenging. It's going to be something, but you feel like you're, you're really embarking on it at that point, especially because we were on like a five hour bus ride through the snow and in the mountains and gorgeous scenery down into the Rockies from Denver. Um, But once you, and it was so kind of, it's kind of placid and tranquil and you kind of get comfortable. I made a bunch of friends on the bus um, only to not be able to speak with them for two weeks. So uh, I was kind of like, all right, we'll, we'll table, we'll bookmark that one. We'll talk, we'll go back to that one. And they were all amazing people in their own right. And so I, I did feel a little intimidated because at the time I didn't have my typical sitting practice uh, that I'd had in years past. I was sort of, you know, out of, out of spiritual shape, we'll say. I was out of shape in a variety of ways, but um, it, and so I definitely was concerned. I was definitely like, well, let's hope I can. Uh, get the most out of this and and not uh, break down, uh, not break down in the way that I you don't want to break down. I'll put it that way. Um, so so anyway, it was it was just the whole experience was amazing. You ended up becoming my med- meditation instructor, which um, for everybody who who doesn't know, I've I've talked about this event before, but um, so this is a this is called a datune. It's a winter datune, and uh, the term actually I don't know the genesis of the term. I know that there's a story behind what Datun itself means, but I'll just give the, the lay person an understanding of it, which is a retreat where um, I don't think the first two weeks were fully silent. Is that correct? I think like the final, the final two weeks were silent. I don't know if you re- recall how it, it went. It gets progressively more silent and it's just kind of basically means like the month long. Right. And <clears throat> uh, so I entered and I think you entered uh, halfway through uh, that period, that, that particular Datun, which is when... Um, I think it becomes fully silent at that point. So we have an orientation with the um, retreat container masters, container uh, managers, we'll say. Masters doesn't sound right. Uh, so they give you sort of a logistical you know, breakdown, tell you what to do, what not to do, give you your schedules. There's chores you must do. There are all these different um, ways of, of engaging that are meant to challenge the ego, that are meant to kind of break down the structures that uh, you might, the comforts and the indulgences that you might normally want to cling to in your daily life. Uh, so there's a design behind sort of how these retreats are organized. And um, at one point, I'm cleaning toilets. At another point, I'm in the kitchen washing dishes with others, uh, not communicating other than through nonverbal communication. And so it's an, it's an amazing challenge. Um, it's not things I'd be doing at home. And, I'm, and I resented it at first, I think, but uh, I, I saw the value in it definitely midway through. So there's a lot of, of that gets discussed. And then you kind of just entered in, enter into um, the retreat space. And that's when uh, you start to... You, there's a meditation schedule. And so you meditate pretty early in the morning and you meditate late at night. You kind of end your day that way. And then there are, there's a talk given by uh, the teacher. And then there are chores and then there are eating sessions you all do kind of communal eating sessions um, throughout the day. And then you have time uh, throughout the day, but you can't really engage in anything that's going to give you some stimulus. So no phone, no computer, no... I think we could journal. I don't remember if we could, but I knew we couldn't read, I think. Um, But really, it's just you with yourself and uh, uh, 24-7. And and you with your practice and trying to kind of go deeper in your practice. And um, I think I've mentioned this before, so my initial period of time was it was very challenging for me and then after a period of challenge where i wanted to leave 
the retreat. I was very upset with it. Um, I was going through emotional trauma at the time, emotional pain. I was going through physical pain because I wasn't in shape to sit for 45 minutes at a time in these poses. And um, I, I kind of resented that I entered the retreat for the first two or three days. That changed one day, kind of just snapped the fingers and, and you know shifted. Um, and then from that point forward, I just had an amazing experience from that point forward. And really, I started to feel what you talked about, the, 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 the power of Crestone, the power of the area around it, the spiritual prominence of what's going on in that environment is so pronounced. Um, the way the animals and the nature feels around you, it's, it's just a, it's a magical place. I don't know how to describe it. Every time I try to describe it, I call it just magic is what it feels well, like. People think that you're going to go on a retreat and it's going to be like a vacation. They yeah. say, oh, I'm going off to, you know, this meditation retreat for two weeks and they're like oh have a nice time <laughs> but um it's sort of anything but a vacation because you know especially if it's a silent retreat you're going through all of this like internal experience and hopefully all this internal growth and what i find is that a retreat it doesn't really matter how long it is that it has the same kind of arc like if you go for a two-day week, a two-week re retreat, a two-month retreat, it's going to have this sort of same pattern of, of, you know, this entering the retreat, um, going through some kind of like big crisis in the retreat, and then um, sort of resolving itself, you know, in the retreat. And, um, and they say that the, uh, uh, you know, going on retreat practice is like super important if you can do it, if you can get away on the meditation path that when they look in scientific studies, like they do at Richie Davidson's lab, that um, when you go from altered states, like really short-term changes to altered traits, long-term changes, like in terms of being more peaceful or how you actually interact with people in your lives, that when you go on a meditation retreat, that it's as effective as like, uh, like a one-week retreat would be, I'm kind of estimating here, would be the same as like a year of daily meditation practice. So it really speeds up transformation. Yeah, I can attest to that. That's really interesting that that sort of... So for those who don't know, Richard Davidson is a professor at University of Wisconsin in Madison. He has been uh, engaged by the Dalai Lama himself in a variety of different mindfulness studies. He studied the brains of different monks that have been meditating long-term to determine all sorts of different uh, uh, effects on the brain of, of long-term meditation. He does lots of different types of these sorts of studies. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting that he's doing it, that he did it specific, I'm not surprised, to folks that, have, um, that are entering retreat situations and uh, determining this, this, uh, this difference between the altered state and altered traits. Uh, that, to me, it just rings true of my own experience anecdotally. So I could see that science would confirm that. One of the things that the pandemic has done to interrupt a lot of people's lives, obviously, um, and, I'm, and I'm feeling the effect of it too, is that at the outset of the pandemic, I actually was prepared to go on a retreat um, and I knew that I kind of had a feeling like, okay, it's about time I go on a retreat and, and, and kind of shake it up a little bit and get deeper into my practice. Um, and unfortunately the retreats that, you know, closed. And so many of them were not open for a long time. And at a time when people really probably could have benefited the most from, from retreating. Um, so I feel like virtual retreats are available and those are always nice and good. But there's, to me, there's nothing kind of quite like being in a physical setting where you're devoted to that practice and you're in a setting with others physically in a sangha where everybody's sort of committed to um, going, going sort of deeper into their practice in this particular way. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I've done a number of virtual retreats um, during the pandemic and they've been really, really good. But um, I have only did one like two-day retreat you know, that was in person during the whole pandemic. And I, and I think, you know, it just can't really replicate that whole like closed container where you have no way to get away from the retreat schedule, no way to get away from your mind, like no way to like just sit and look at your phone or do something, you, you know, you're not supposed to be doing during that time. There's, there's something about that discipline of 
like, oh my God, holy cow, you know, I just, I have to keep doing this practice and, you know, I can't stand it anymore, but I'm still here. And, you know, I really want to get the hell out of this retreat space. And, but I'm in, I'm in Crestone, Colorado, and it's a five Good hour luck. bus ride back. Yeah. Good luck. Exactly. Right. Uh, so what I, did you find out in that retreat? Like what happened? What happened next once you were there and you settled in? So uh, one thing I, I want to touch on too, before I get to that question, because you just said that everybody goes through these crises and everybody has an arc. And so we met in meditation groups. I think it was once per week or once every few days. And that was like the half hour where you actually could speak. And we could kind of say what was going on and check in. Basically, it was meant to, for us to be able to check in. And everybody had very different experiences, which I thought was so uh, fascinating to me because at different times, of course, everybody's approaching the retreat experience from just very different angles. Um, and there was, I, I recall, so one of the things that struck me about you was that your presence was so like, you, 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 you presented yourself in such an um, internally placid and tranquil way. And you were able to kind of just be in the moment and not, you know, just not have to talk and not have to kind of move around and not have to do anything really. You could just sit there. And I always, I'm very impacted by other people in that like way. So that, that aura, I think Ron Doss did this a lot. Um, other people that I know that do this really well, Reggie was the teacher of that retreat does this well. I think people can kind of um, just, you know, when you're, when you're in your body and you're feeling your presence and consciousness, the concept floats away. And so you don't have to engage with, you know, you don't have to interact and move around so much. I appreciate, I love that about you. I'll be honest. That's why I was kind of like, whoa, this is impressive. Um, but there was a woman in our retreat group that wasn't as impressed by that. And I found that really funny because she was, very, she was struggling and she wanted answers and she was, she was talking and she was asking for answers that her mind would, that her rationality could, you could appeal to. And that the intellect would get it. And there'd be able to be some sort of intellectual exchange that would satisfy the discomfort that was happening. And instead, you were just presenting as you were. And I could, I could, she, she vented frustration. And I just thought that was really interesting and fascinating because she was a really nice woman. And I don't, it was where she was in that moment. But it's an observation that I had because I was in the group, obviously. And it's so funny that the very thing that I was like drawn into you about was like, you know, eating at her a little bit because she wanted you to kind of engage with the intellect and you were just, you were where you were. Um, so that, that was something that I never mentioned to you either that I thought was really fascinating about that experience. Um, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but it's just something that I observed. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. And um, I don't recall it exactly. And it just may be, um, where I was at that time, whether it was skillful or not skillful, yeah. but I was on um, a recent um, online retreat and the teacher was engaging with a student who just wasn't accepting the practice and wanted to engage with it mentally. And the teacher just told the student that you're tr those are just thoughts. You're trying to engage with it with your mind. And we're, we're not engaging with it with our mind. That's not what we're doing here. You know, and you need to um, look in, in that particular practice, look until you can't find, you know, you, you need to not think about it. You need to do the practice. Yeah. So um, maybe I needed a different response to her so she would stop being frustrated or maybe she just needed to be frustrated mm -hmm. and that's how it was yeah but, um, part of the job of the meditation instructor is to hold the space and just do the practice and so uh that that that's what that's the gig yeah no i was like i said i was drawn in and i was fascinated by by the whole dynamic of it um, and particularly what you brought to it. So that's why I was really excited to have you on today because I feel like you embody... When I think of people who really... And this is something I do want to talk about actually, and we'll get to my experience, but I wanted to talk about the fact that for those who, who are listening and watching, very often when I talk, when I 
the premise of this podcast. Many people are like, that's nice that you do this. You have the time, you have the energy, you have um, resources. You're able to sit and meditate in a given day. I don't have time. I've got to work. I've got my kid running around. I've got uh, bills to pay. I've got to figure out what's going on over here and there, et cetera, et cetera. And I hear this very often. Um, and and But what I do know is that people will respond when they hear that, well, I'm actually working a full-time job. I have essentially two other full-time jobs on the side. I've got all sorts of things going on. Um, I'm, you know, People would say I'm objectively a very busy person, I think, if you look at my schedule. And um, yet I prioritize mindfulness. I prioritize activities that are going to help me feel more engaged at the soulful level and spiritual level because... Um, oh, there's a variety of reasons. I won't give mine, but essentially I'm motivated by, I'm motivated to live by my purpose is to evolve my soul uh, on here on this plane on this vessel and try to do what I can for it. all the other stuff for me is tangential and it all contributes to it. But that that's, that's me still somebody who has a diff- different motivations. Um, I think they tend to respect people who, who are out in the world, right? Out in business or whatever, or in their day, day-to-day jobs have, families do all these things and still find ways to create the time and space to practice. And in your case, um, I think you're like a shining example of that. And so I feel like, you know, you've had amazing success in the, at the business level, uh, as I don't want to get this wrong, but were you the CEO or did you create Athena capital? Was that hedge fund something you designed or is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I um, I, I'm now, I'm now, um, yeah, I was the founder and CEO of Athena Capital Advisors. We, um, we were a uh, wealth management and OCIO firm. We grew to like $6 billion. And then I, um, I sold my firm to mm-hmm. Franklin Templeton, who merged it with Fiduciary Trust. And so I'm now vice chair of Fiduciary Trust and on, and on the management committee of Franklin Templeton. And you know, at the time when, when we met, I was, I was running Athena Capital, you know, ma- managing managing the firm. I think I had three children at home, one of whom had special needs, um, and I really had my hands full. Yeah, and you um, found a way to carve out two weeks of your time during the holiday time period to to go and do this and be and serve as a meditation instructor. Yeah, I mean, it's not not easy to do that. Yeah can't do it all the time, but I was really, you know, committed. And, you know, as far as daily practice, you know, just find time whenever you can. People find time in their day. Every For everybody, the solution is different. And for me, it was usually waking up before everybody else in the household and practicing super early in the morning. But um, for everybody, it's different. And what I love to do was just to take like two minutes in between a meeting and the next meeting and just like take a couple deep breaths, you know, just close the door for like a minute and a half. And that was probably the, the absolute best part of the whole day. Uh, I'm and, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we can do it if we want to. And uh, to, um, the Indians and the Tibetans called it like a householder yogi. You know, there are people who can go and be monks and dedicate their whole life. but you know, even in that routine, you know, they end up with jobs in the monastery and they find that they don't get so much time to meditate. So um, it really isn't any different anywhere. There's obstacles and, you know, we all make time to do what it is that we prioritize. Yeah. And I think it's even people have that vision, right? Of like, it's so rare to find like a wandering sadhu in the cave, like being there and living a hermetic life for like 10 years at a time. The idea that this is like a common theme that some people have in their mind, oh, that's what it means to be a practitioner, a full-time practitioner. It's like, that's so unbelievably rare, almost barely, you know, impossible to do this day and age. Um, but still people, you know, very often that's kind of an image image that gets conjured up by folks about what it means to commit to a spiritual practice. And I do think it's really important to highlight, um, in your case, all the many different responsibilities that you've juggled while uh, maintaining a practice and while making spirituality and meditation and mindfulness, a very focal point of your life, very integral point of your life. Um, because it's, 
it's extremely doable. It's just how we prioritize these things. Um, and so anyway, I wanted to just quickly point that out because people will really uh, react to that once, once they see your full resume in the uh, show notes and see everything you've done. I'm not even, I haven't even scratched the surface people. She's been on the board of, of many different institutions that you've heard of or been to. Uh, we'll just name a few. Garrison Institute, Kripalu, and what am I leaving out? Um, one other, right? Mind and that, Life. And Mind and it, Life. And yeah. Mind and Life. Yeah. Uh, so, and yeah, you can read about that in the show notes, but, but um, so, so Lissette has played an integral role to major institutions that actually help promote and facilitate programs that allow people to get away when they can, that allow people to engage with the practices on, you know, when they can. And, and um, uh, obviously each of these institutions do different things, but, but, you know, for the most part, that's what those institutions are set up to do. And uh, I've had, I've dabbled, had a little experience of, with all three of them at different points and they're amazing places to, Kripalo in particular is some place that holds a fondness in my heart because there's just always some of the most, I, I mean, they get the best mindfulness teachers and, and folks that are living in a mindful way to come through there on an annual, on a regular basis. And it's a beautiful location and it's uh, just a really well, well presented, well produced, well executed program uh, structure they have there. Yeah, each of the places have their own thing. And, and Kripalu is, is like a great place to get started and, you know, choose your own adventure and just figure out what's good for you. And Garrison is a great place for deepening practice. They are much um, have a better site kind of for silent retreats. And it's really close to New York City and they get sort of international uh, figures to come through there. So um, I love you know, absolutely love Garrison too. And yeah. uh, Jonathan and Deanna Rose that founded it are are very um, uh, deep and wonderful um, seekers themselves. Uh, so, so they have kind of different, different flavors. Um, and then uh, Mind and Life has a lot of um, online programs now and pod, you know, podcasts themselves too. And they've always been about, um, uh, the intersection of contemplative practice and science. Uh, and I was a former scientist, so that's like super interesting to me, like the things we were talking about earlier with Richie Davidson. And in some ways, you know, maybe science is the religion of modern times, uh, you know, getting together physicists or neuroscientists with contemplatives. And, you know, there's a lot we, I think, can learn from each other. And we're still discovering. So, yeah. So that's a great segue to get me back to what you asked my experience of the retreat, um, and also kind of focuses on the the theme of this podcast, which I intend to have. So far, we've had some therapists, we've had some folks that have dealt with trauma work that have been guests on this podcast. Um, I'm starting from that position mostly because what I learned in that retreat was that I had trauma work that I needed to kind of work with in order to feel the sensory experience of my inner chakras, of my inner uh, parts of my body to get through the tough exterior, the tough conditioning that's been built up over time as a result of trauma, uh, different traumas in my life. And um, which wouldn't really, even though I had the focus and the attention, I, I still had some impediments to experiencing the somatic, um, the level of somatic experience and the breath work that we were working on in that particular retreat. Uh, what I learned was by asking Reggie, the, the retreat teacher, uh, I asked him, you know, in a I think I wrote a question to him and said something about having trouble breaking through to, to the channels. He wrote back, like, you should look into Peter Levine's work on, um, you know, waking the tiger on, on Peter Levine is a, is a person who created somatic experiencing in response to the research that had been coming out of many different institutions, including Bessel van der Kolk's work, which I've mentioned a number of times in this podcast, out of um, he was the former uh, director of the Harvard Psychiatry Program, where he was working with veterans in PTSD settings, and they've been for years in the 80s and 90s were medicating these veterans, not seeing a lot of progress long term in uh, the recidivism of PTSD in these patients, and it wasn't until he decided that he needed to look at different research out there to understand uh, exactly what was going on. And so it, it took a few case studies of his to realize that when people would describe their experience of their traumatic event that would lead to PSD, for example, it ultimately for him came back to uh, the fact that trauma was being stored in the body. It wasn't 
you weren't going to get through to the parts of the brain that the typical medication uh, diet treatment would work on or the typical talk therapy treatment would work on. Those, those types of treatments were not responding. The patients were not responding because uh, in, in the research he had done, basically he had determined that there are actually, we hold in the reptilian part of our brain, the limbic system of our brain, which, which triggers down into our body and our physical, our nervous system, we actually hold and store these data points of trauma in the body because we are so, uh, when, when we get, when we experience these traumatic moments very often at a younger age, we don't have the faculties to, uh, work them through. So we just kind of get, a, get overwhelmed and then they actually end up seeping in through our limbic system into our body. And they're just trapped there. They're held there for decades at times, you know, maybe for a lifetime for some people, a lot of people. Um, and so he realized that in order to uh, to work with trauma, he started to look to things like what animals do when they experience a traumatic event and they're able to physically shake it off and run and kind of keep running if it's a fight or flight. If they an animal has a tendency to be a flight uh, response uh, individual or an animal, they ended up you know running away, right? And that running away when if you're a deer and you're getting chased by a lion, you can actually shake off the trauma of the event because you're engaging and you're actively moving from it and you don't hold it and there's no deleterious effect from the PTSD because you've moved away from it. And to me, that was fascinating. And so on that body of work, there are people out there that are doing important things. Also, Bessel recommends yoga for that reason. He says through yoga, we can, and through certain movements in our body, we can move that trauma. So for me, that was the greatest learning experience that I took from that meditation retreat was that um, while I felt like conceptually, I understood the practice pretty well, intellectually, I really appreciated where they were coming from. And I saw the reasoning for it and I felt like the rationale was great. And I'm a very conceptual person. So that all appealed to me, but I still had, I still was a little frustrated that I, I couldn't break through and learning that this was likely the reason set me off on a new path. And that's when I started reaching out to somatic experiencers, practitioners who were trained by the Peter Levines of the world to go out and help you move through um, these traumatic experiences in your body and stop using your mind for that. I started talking to rolfers, people who do really deep massage work that are intended to also play with the fascia of the body that are intended, it's intended to kind of move around where this trauma could be stored. Um, really any type of somatic engagement that I could do from that point forward, I was all in on. So I've, uh, EMDR is something I, I, I experienced. Um, that's rapid eye movement for the sake of trying to work with trauma. It's a, it's a designed, uh, a psych, I want to say it's a psychological practice really, where if you focus your eyes in a particular way, you're actually not engaging with the rationality, the intellectual part of your your mind to uh, deal with trauma. You're allowing some sort of subconscious element. And really it's a physical element, physiological element that is going to work to allow trauma to get out of the body. So, so getting back to your scientific background, that's what being in that retreat and going through what I went through there and having all those experiences and struggle, that was the main takeaway was that, oh, I'm at, you know, this retreat's great. I'm not getting everything I can out of it because I can't access certain things. But that tells me that I'm at, instead of level one, I got to go back to level zero and do a little, and that's fine. That's just where I am. It's not a, it's not a, you know, good or a bad thing. Um, and I started yeah. engaging with these, the, with, with trauma as my primary practice. I think it's super important. And I think that a lot of, um, I think it's super, maybe it's super important in, in Tibet and India and the East, but I, I know it's super important for us Westerners. And I, I think we have to engage spirituality and psychology at the same time. I think otherwise we really risk spiritual bypassing and thinking that we're doing something spiritual, but we're really just numbing out or, you know, retreating into a peaceful experience. Uh, um, you know, and then we end up people, you know, not behaving in a way that is really ethical um, and not behaving, you know, behaving in ways that harm people because they haven't actually integrated that, that spirituality and it hasn't actually um, gone to a place where they're compassionate to themselves and others that, you know, that the result of spirituality has to really start at home and, you know, with heal, healing our own stuff. You know, we have to take care of our own stuff so that we can take care of others. And I, I think that's 
that's just the way it is. It's sort of like the base of the Maslow's pyramid um, in spirituality is that you can't really help other people until you deal with your own stuff. Otherwise, you're going to end up with all of these relationships that are just entanglements, codependence, you know, stuff like that. So, um, you know, when you want to be compassionate, you have to remember, you know, to include yourself. Um, So uh, I I found that, um, you know, likewise, I had, you know, layers and layers and layers of trauma that I had to deal with. And I think I was drawn to um, body-based meditation because it seemed like something that would help, you know, lots of people very quickly. And I think um, that's true, but it's just one tool. And um, that you'd think, oh, it's the mind. So, uh, you know, you should be able to just do spirituality and spirituality and the mind are separate. But I think what I'm discovering is the place that that they intersect is that um, kind of like, you know, you have the soul pod as uh, your theme here and uh, becoming nobody. Um, there's this um, concept of, you know, emptiness of self that, uh, that really this thing we think of a self at the end of the day, it's, we're just, there's really just, you know, kind of self-awareness. We're confusing self and a sense of self-awareness. But when you have trauma, you know, there's just sort of an aching somewhere or there's, there's pain somewhere. And I think until you can move through your trauma, it's super hard to, uh, it, 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 it's super hard to let go of that sense of self. You're always like clinging onto it. And, um, you know, there's a ton of different techniques to work, to work with that. And yeah, I, 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 uh, I worked with, um, Internal family systems was one that I worked with. Um, short-term intensive dynamic psychotherapy was another one that I worked with. Um, and I just found it was super helpful. And that if we were kidding ourselves, if we think that we can go on and become, uh, I don't know, spiritually enlightened and ignore our trauma. Okay, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll notice that my image quality is pretty poor right now. It's because we had a technical Im- uh, glitch after Lisette gave that great response to um, what I was talking about in terms of where we all are at our different paths. So don't mind the blurriness, but if you're listening to this, it doesn't matter. You can't see me, so it's all good. Um, so I, uh, I heard the term spiritual bypassing and that perked me up because... John Wellwood was somebody who I felt uh, a strong connection to. And I actually emailed immediately after that retreat um, because I wanted to explore if the things that I had been doing in the past was in fact spiritual bypassing. I wanted to really understand it. So I picked up a bunch of... um, Well, I searched the term and it looked to me that John Wellwood was one of the first people to actually coin that term. Uh, and he's a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, just like our teacher at the time, Reggie Ray, was a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, just like so many amazing teachers of our current modern times. Pema Children is a student of uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, John Baker is a student of Trungpa. So many amazing different teachers are a student of uh, John, uh, sorry, Chogim Trungpa. And um, I should mention, by the way, we had my close friend, C.T. Tamora, who's a meditation instructor in New York on our second episode, and he's a student of John Baker. And CT and I met at a, a dinner for my cousin. And she, my cousin's friend had just married CT. And um, he and John are very close. And so we started, I had started talking about uh, Dharma Ocean and being connected to that song at the time. And so we had this great uh, connection with Trungpa. And it was just, um, it got me sort of, to, he got me acquainted with John Baker. And John Baker is a, a pretty amazing teacher in New York. And one of the things I can't believe is he just doesn't have, 
a following. He doesn't have enough people that know about him. And I feel like, as I said to CT in that in that uh, conversation on our episode, it's amazing to me how many just impactful people walking around this earth with some with great insights, having studied, practiced for decades at a time, embody the teachings, embody what it is to live in a mindful way, a compassionate way. Um, you can feel their presence. You could feel their aura jump off at you when you're around them. And so you just get impacted. And yet he's got a little room in the Lower East Side on like Tuesday nights where you can pay 10 bucks and maybe like 10 to 15 to 20 people show up in a given week to go hear this guy speak. And it's kind of crazy to me that he doesn't have a bigger platform. Um, so that's a topic for, and I don't, know, I don't know if you have an opinion about that, but that always blows my mind. Well, I think one thing that's just important to say, don't need to get into all the details of it, but since those many years ago when we were at Dotan with Reggie Ray, that I'm no longer studying with Reggie right. Ray, but I still do consider myself absolutely in the lineage of Chugnam Trimpa Rinpoche. Right. And uh, you know, and I do think um although, you know, he had what's called crazy wisdom and uh a lot of interesting things happened that he's really a special meditation master and he did um, spark a lot of um, interesting things and has a number of really great students who are uh, really do embody the teachings. And, uh, and he did have an authentic lineage that he brought here to America and um, some interesting things have happened along the way. Um, not every single one of his students has um, embodied it as fully as we might hope, but he has some really um, fantastic uh, students uh, who have gone on to become great teachers themselves. So uh, that gets to a little bit, um, I want you to be able to talk about your trauma thing, but a little bit to the topic of choosing a teacher. And um, there it is a hard thing to do. Um, and there's definitely a buyer beware aspect. And uh, there have been a lot of, you know, blow ups and craziness um, here in the West. And there's a book that I love um, by uh, Zongsar uh, Jamyang Kinsey, kind of a mouthful for us Westerners, but the title isn't. And it's called The Guru Drinks Bourbon. Uh, and it's it's all about uh, choosing a teacher. And there's some really interesting little blurbs by um, the Dalai Lama, a couple pages long, and by Mingyur Rinpoche that you can search uh, on the web about choosing a teacher. And it's really, you know, there's some some things like, you know, the the, the guru should have an authentic lineage. The guru should be kind, um, should be learned. Uh, and should not be interested in your wallet, thighs, or toes. Uh, mm. So, <laughs> you know, there's a few, uh, a few good ones in there. So, um, and then most people have a lot of teachers over time, um, but it really helps in terms of transformation to settle down with um, one teacher that you can um, have that kind of container where you're willing to uh, really pay attention to what they're teaching you, you know, that you can form some kind of bond with. So that's just talking a little bit lightly about the guru principle. Um, but at some point in your studies, it is helpful, I think, to get past um, what you can get on an app and actually have interaction with a human being um, so that you can get a little more um, something directed to your own particular path and, and unique experience. So uh, as long as you're talking about uh, students of Chogyam Trumper Rinpoche, you know, there, there are a lot of really great ones out there, but no matter who you're going to pick, there are wonderful sons of Tulku origin. Um, and all of his sons, I think, are fantastic teachers, um, whether it's um, Chukinima or uh, Mingyur Rinpoche or um, um, uh, Sokni Rinpoche. They're all fantastic. Uh, so, and there's tons of other non-Tibetan teachers out there, Western teachers who are great. So, 
I won't plug any more of my favorite ones. You can find them. <laughs> yeah, no, Sharon it's wonderful. Sharon is wonderful. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, uh, my my I, as we've talked before, my ex girlfriend, who's now one of my best friends, she she studies with uh, Chokim uh, sorry, Chokim Nima Rinpoche, uh, who you just mentioned. And he, um, she was drawn to him for the very reasons that you're talking about. He's just a kind spirit. Um, he, he's not. He doesn't have that sort of tough love, crazy wisdom thing that sort of was what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was known for. Which is what um, many people em- embraced him for. That I actually personally had trouble, to be honest. To this day, I've never really had a lot of because it's tough to get. You get. You don't get firsthand accounts, or the accounts you get at those times, they seem like you're sensationalized. You don't really know really what was going on, but you have there are stories out there about the way he behaved, and it's, some of it's been documented on film and otherwise. And it's like there's this genius, and there's this person who, um, in many ways, people feel was you know half in this realm, half out of this realm. He was sort of sort of an elevated being, and however you want to refer to it in Buddhist terms or in, in uh, Western terms. Somebody who clearly carried a, a a certain spiritual presence that was other than or beyond or further than just our our physical plane, many would argue. Uh, however, he was susceptible to many of the very uh, many of the uh, the ailments and, and and afflictions that humans have. If anything, to a great degree, like addiction was an issue. Uh, some people believe, like drinking, uh, other types of. Um, you know, other types of issues he had that were, that were sort of base level, you know, human afflictions. And it's like, for me, it was always really tough to reconcile that. Many people said, well, you don't really understand. He's the guru and therefore he's doing these things as a way of teaching. And it's meant through instruction. And as students, we have to receive that. But I, as a Westerner, not having that sort of uh, automatic inherent sort of like, oh, let's just, let's just kind of give um, deference to the, to the, to the guru. I challenged that. I was kind of like, well, I don't have that innate instinct to go, well, the guru always knows best. doesn't matter if he's drinking like a fish and treating people poorly and embarrassing them. I, I doesn't mean that I'm going to see the wisdom in that, you know? And um, I always would, I always searched for any records of like Pema children talking about how, cause she spoke about him in such glowing terms in most of her books. And anytime I'd seen her speak and I wanted, to, and she did admit that she has admitted over, over time that he, you know, he had these issues, but I never, I was always like, well, how, how do you reconcile that this is your teacher uh, and you, and you, and they drive so much of what you do, but they're doing some glaring, you know, they're, they're engaging in some pretty glaring bad practices as a person. And uh, I never quite got those answers yet. I'm still drawn to the lineage in some way. And I can't, cause I take and choose what I get from the people that I, I hold and I value and people I find that I think have, you know, the integrity or have whatever they're offering to me that seems authentic. And so instead of focusing on, um, you know, the conflicts, I just try to pay attention to what about the message? What about what's being embodied that I can adapt and I can kind of bring into my own practice and, and make mine. So that's kind of the way I've worked with it. Right. It's complicated and there is no uh, perfect human being and no perfect human teacher and the um, situations and circumstances in a particular time are hard to understand. So I think we all have to go into it with our eyes open and look very carefully at the particular being and the pattern of behavior of the person we're thinking about is going to be our teacher. And is that a fit for us? And do they have a pattern of abuse or narcissism or um, do they have safeguards in their community that are workable and the right things for us? Um, and, and just take, take it from there. You know, does does the, is this situation workable for what we need? And um, and go into it with your eyes open, and and then when you've, it's like going into any other kind of relationship. You know, we don't you don't want to just pick a spiritual teacher. You know, we spend more time sometimes searching for a sofa 
than we do in picking uh, <laughs> like a guru. So uh, I think that's really the the message. Yeah, uh, I've 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 drawn this point too about therapy and about therapists as well. Same thing. You spend more time on yeah items you're going to buy right than some people. Most people, not most, but many people come to me and say, "Look, oh, oh therapy's cute. That's great. It's all good. It worked for you." But I tried therapy once. And yeah, that person, you know, it didn't work out. And I'm like, well, you just went to one individual to 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 work with the issues of your mind that have been a part of your, you know, of your experience for decades and decades. And you're working with your brain here and the health of it. And you're just going to go to one individual you picked out of a your healthcare plans roster because they took your insurance and you and they were or they were, cl- they were within five miles of your house and you thought that that was going to be the end of it. Like they would be the person out of the millions that are going to you're going to connect with and they're going to have the answers like that's not you didn't give it a fair shake like you've got to really do the work you've got to vet it you know you've got to really find your the person you resonate with and the person that's going to allow you to be vulnerable and allow you to open up i know so many people that will just find a therapist and if it, let's just say they they got somewhere with them they weren't they didn't kind of decide instantly that they weren't going to work but even in the work they admitted they would hold back they wouldn't you know, open up and give everything and they would be secretive or guarded because they were protecting their ego and they wanted the therapist to look fondly upon them or they didn't, they were too embarrassed to share certain things. And it's like, well, those are the things that, you know, if you can't be honest with yourself and you're going to a person to try to help with that and you're not going to offer this up, you're not fully committed. You're not fully engaging. And so the same, um, I think the same applies to practice. It's not just, yes, you've got to definitely do the work that you find the right teacher and and look for the right things and it's going to be a process and you're going to you know you're probably going to find a bunch of teachers that aren't going to work for you initially but then when you do that when you finally find that person you've also got to be willing to fully commit you can't just kind of show up to the practice and think that the the perfect teacher quote unquote is going to lead you through and you're not going to have to be completely vulnerable you're not going to have to complete you know give yourself completely to the practice that's going to have to happen also uh, for you to get the benefit out of it for you to be able to kind of um, experience what what these practices are aimed at, and I just want to on that note, I want to kind of we have a few minutes left. I want to really definitely get to this point because the person who I've settled on as my teacher, who is no longer on this earth, is is Ramdas, uh, and he's sort of why I created this podcast. And um, it's funny because I've done you know as you know, let's say I'm a lawyer, and so I've, and I'm, I used to be an investigative lawyer. I've been a federal prosecutor in my background. I did a lot of due diligence on Ramdas. So I was like, well, let's get the dirt on this guy because he's too perfect. Like, what's going on? There's got to be. So I, I actually bought his um his he, his memoir came out right I think just after his death actually. So he didn't want to he didn't want to produce a memoir. He never really felt the need, but people convinced him and he did it. Thank God. And you get to see the human side of, of him, and you get to see really kind of all the you know all the flaws and all the issues and all the things that humans encounter. He was very very upfront about in this piece, and I loved it for that reason. Um, and there are things he did that, you know, uh, that, you know, you can relate to, like I could relate to as, as, as a teen or in my twenties and just kind of doing things that are reckless, um, and just, uh, not really well thought out, not in line with what you'd think a spiritual devotee is, is supposed to do. Um, and that was really relatable to me, but, uh, I did look for like, well, where are the weird, you know, where's the sort of, uh, uh, sexual harassment stuff that he's going, you know, and in all the searches I've done, fortunately, there are not a lot of public accounts of anybody um, having those types of issues with him. There are, there are some accounts, but you, what I'll see is that uh, some people will say, well, it's all great and good for a guy born into a white cis male privilege, born into wealth, uh, who can, you know, of course he can go and have the freedom and luxury to go to India or to, you know, to have these uh, amazing sits where he'd have hordes of people come to his estate in New Hampshire and um, be able to have these speaking engagements around the world and, and practice in the way that he did. Cause he had these conditions and that's the one, that's the one critique I've seen of him. And it's like, if that's your critique, I'm pretty okay with that. Like the man took that, he took those conditions and he served. He, 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 he like you said, he, he kind of tended to himself initially. All of his work was figuring out, his challenging spots, understanding where he was blind, understanding where he needed to kind of develop and doing that work for eternity, really forever. And then in doing so, felt felt compelled 
to be able to share that with others for the benefit of that. And, and for me, it was just like, it really, um, he just hits home. He just really, it just kind of ticks all the bells. And you've had the, you've had the, the amazing experience of being able to be around him before. Can you kind of give us a little bit of insight, like what it was like to be around Ramdas? Yeah, I totally can. And I would be um, remiss if I didn't mention the um, my friend and the the teacher that introduced me to Ram Das, who's Lama Surya Das. Um, Very well so, known Western Western Lama, who Jewish man from Long Island, uh, which is yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I live. That's where I'm from. So uh, amazing. I've read his um, Awakening the Heart Within. Uh, uh, I think it's called Awakening the Heart. The Awakening the Buddha with Awakening the Buddha. Within, Awakening the Buddha Within. And a and, whole uh, series of yeah. like eleven or fourteen books, and uh, and and uh, very humorous, but um, you know, v- very accessible. You know, great teacher of Dzogchen, yeah. and uh, um, lives nearby me in Massachusetts. But um, he introduced me to uh, Ramdas in Hawaii, and uh, I had the you know the great privilege to to go over in the afternoons and and hang out for the Hanuman Chalisa or, or go to dinner with variety of people and um, go for the Monday mornings um, when we go out uh, swimming and mm. and out to the ocean and uh, there he'd, he'd come with his wheelchair and mm-hmm. um, it'd be oh boy oh boy yep. oh boy <laughs> oh joy oh joy oh joy and we'd yep. all throw rose petals out there but you know there's always uh you know this big big picture of um Maharaji um, under his plaid blanket in the living room. And, you know, the whole um, house was full of such love. And I think that's what I think of when I think of Ram Das is I just think of pure love. Um, and that's that's really what he was all about. And he channeled Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, um, you know, with his big heart. And uh, um, yeah, that's that's really what he's all about. And when I do my practice um, and I bring in um, the retinue is what I call it, but all the assembly of of all of my gurus and teachers and lineage and whether it's um, uh, from Christian and Jewish and Hindu and Buddhist and all the different backgrounds, but all the mentors and teachers who have been with me over the years, I always am sure to bring in uh, Ram Das and Neem Karoli Baba. And um, they're so inspiring and they're still with me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and you're describing the house as I'd imagine it to be. Uh, my last episode was me talking about the premise of becoming nobody and, and how Ram Dass described it. And then I, um, I took it and broke it down in sort of practical elements of how I've applied it in my life. And, uh, and in that documentary, Becoming Nobody, where Jamie Cato, um, he interviewed Ram Dass, you just got the sense of that from the house, the physical, the physical experience of the house, which was he, you know, especially in his later years, um, intended to kind of create a, a, an environment of pure love around him. And he really embodied that, at least my experience of it um, from, from afar. But um, yeah, I, I can imagine him. And it's, it's, I feel touched just to talk to somebody who's been there and kind of experienced it firsthand and direct. Uh, I wish I would have when he was still alive. I was actually scheduled to go on his retreat that spring of 2020, just before he passed. Um, but that would have been beautiful. But yeah, I look forward to getting out to Maui still. I'm still very actively following the Love Server Member Foundation. I contribute when possible. I listen to Raghu Marcus uh, and all the podcasts on their on their platform. And uh, they're doing an amazing service by preserving his uh, legacy and by making sure that people continue to hear his teachings today. Because even kids that you know didn't even really know who Ram Dass was resonate with his message so much. Some, a lot of young people I know love his work. So it's timeless, you know. I think Be Here Now was the very first book I ever read on spirituality when I was like a young teenager. So he was a constant thread for me. And I don't know if you can see me like beaming here or your folks um, can hear it in my voice, but um, he really, uh, he really is just like that pure love. 
Yeah, no, I I can get that, and that's pretty much everybody that's ever encountered him that I've talked to. I I, I was at a talk with Mirabai Bush, actually it was a Ram Dass memorial ceremony, um, and the the book that they co-authored, "Walking Each Other Home," which was about uh, dying. Right, it was about discussing Ram Dass's experience of his own dying process, and then also Ram Dass talked about um, and and Mirabai talked about their work with the dying population. And when Mirabai would speak about him, and so many Krishna Das was there, I think Raghu Marcus might have been there. Sharon Salzberg was there. Um, Joe Joseph uh, uh, was he there? No. Anyway, a bunch of people were there, and they um, they beamed. They they really did. There was all just lightness, and you felt Ram Das in the room. You really did. It was at the New York Open Center, and uh, you just you just felt it. So um, it's it it's. Your experience is compatible with most people I know that have been around him. I am fortunate to have ever encountered his works. And I'm also on the still though, even though I consider Ramdas my root guru, I am on the perpetual lookout for a Sangha um, that I can connect with here uh, in the physical plane and a teacher that I can connect with in the physical plane. Because like you have said, I do feel like it's super important to be guided by uh, somebody here on earth uh, that you can kind of help um, can help you on your journey and help you feel connected and committed and you can recommit to your practice and you have that sense of community, which I think we all yearn for on some level. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I continue to search, but, uh, I'm hopeful that I'll have that soon. In the interim, I just, this work for me is, is inviting people into my process. And I feel like this is part of my spiritual practice. So I thank you for being a part of my spiritual practice. Um, the way you were back uh, six years ago when we were on that dot tune, and you actually were a big, big formative part of that experience for me. So I can't thank you enough for um, for your work there too, and all the service you've done in your life, and not just um, spiritual service, but you you obviously have worked uh, with a lot of different foundations and a lot of great causes. I know that you're committed to, uh, for example, the cause of of uh, looking out for children who are interacting on the internet and different, uh, the metaverse, for example, is one one avenue, one area that is totally a wild west at this moment. We don't have any regulation really there because we really, it's st- still so new, but it's primed for, um, you know, individuals taking advantage of, of kids uh, that the way it's currently structured. And the same goes for other social media platforms, which I know you've been a real advocate for. And if you want to say anything about that before we close, I feel like it's a big part of your... Uh... Yeah, it, it really is. And the Washington Post just put out an article that you know kids who aren't supposed to be going to the metaverse are, and of course, sexual predators are uh, sure to follow because wherever there are kids. And um, it's just been a, a huge issue with... Um, uh, you know, with, with all the social media platforms and, you know, over 20 million images last year of child sexual abuse material on um, social media and reported to the Center for Missing Exploited Children. And it's a big campaign that me, my daughter, a bunch of women investors have been on and uh, working with um, uh shareholder advocacy campaigns, but talking to uh, Meta, uh, Apple, uh, Alphabet, um, AT&T, just uh, really making a difference and and getting out there. Uh, But it it is a big issue. And my daughter's um, a survivor of child sexual abuse, um, where she was groomed on the internet, and she's on a couple survivors council. And uh, so it is a big cause and it is a big issue and something parents and teachers and all of us should be aware of that it is uh, wild west and uh, not a safe playground um so yeah, anyway, yeah yeah i'll just say meta meta in particular uh i've seen their beta of of their metaverse and a lot of the critique out there is that it's it's um it's not a safe place for women let alone uh children. So, so there's still a lot of, lot of work to be done before they roll out a real product there. But Gary, thank you so much. It is just absolutely a delight to reconnect with you. Uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. I, I love this series. I love your idea about it. Um, you're, I, I recognize you're like really special person on that Dotton and uh, so glad to be here today and, and best of luck. Thank you so much. And your, we all, and your I know, journey. 
Thank yeah. yeah, thank you so much for being a part of my journey. And I know how busy you are. So to take this time out of your life to to be a part of this is uh, I know other people are going to get a lot out of this. And so that's why I was dying to have you on. I'm so glad you you agreed. Um, I really appreciate having met you in the first place. You've you've had a big impact in my life, even though we haven't seen each other in a couple of years. You're always in the back of my mind. And uh, hopefully we get a chance to have a conversation again in the future. There's a lot to cover still, I feel like. So if you're, if you're open to it, um, I'd love to have you again. And thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening and watching, please, if you like this episode with Lissette, how could you not? Uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Do the same thing. Rate us on Apple. Uh, everybody you tell about this podcast, the more you do that, the more you get others to see it and hear it. And that's really the main goal here. So thank you so much, Lisette. And I uh, look forward to seeing you all the next time on The Soul Pod. Hope to see you soon. Take care, Gary. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.